Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome into the Tech Ed Podcast. I am your host, Matt Kirkner. And if you listen often, you know that we have had a fixation, maybe even an obsession with technical education in the state of North Dakota. I spent two weeks earlier this year traveling North Dakota from one end to the other, meeting amazing innovators and disruptors in technical education. We turned that into its own episode. I spent time with Dr. Corey Steiner on another episode. He is the superintendent of Northern Cass School District, doing amazing things in student-centered learning. Then I had the pleasure and the privilege of keynoting the Governor's Summit on Innovative Education. And we turned that keynote into its own episode here on the Tech Ed Podcast. Well, if you have enjoyed those episodes, you are going to love this one. Our guest today is a candidate for President of the United States. He is also the Governor of North Dakota. It is my great pleasure to introduce to the audience of the Tech Ed Podcast, the Honorable Doug Burgum, Governor of North Dakota. Governor, thanks so much for joining us. Matt, well, it's a fantastic to be with you. And uh, thank you for spending and investing your time in North Dakota. Thanks for being a keynoter at our Governor's Summit on Innovation Education. It's been fantastic what you're doing to help help students, uh, help change, help drive in innovation uh, in education is uh, changing lives and making a difference for our country. So thank you. And to hear that from somebody with your incredible background, Governor, that means a tremendous amount. So thank you so much for those very, very kind words. I want to talk about that background. You have such an incredible story. You grew up in small town, North Dakota. You were a tech CEO. You had a very successful exit of a business to a, a very well-known um, Fortune 500 company and, and just a tremendous career. And now you here you are, you're the governor of your state of North Dakota. So tell us, how does someone start out in a small town like Arthur, North Dakota, have this incredible business career and then become governor of the state? Give us a, a sense for the journey. Well, I, I think the first thing actually ties back actually directly to, to tech ed because so many people that have tech ed backgrounds become entrepreneurs. And I just have to credit my parents. My parents absolutely supported me on every idea I ever had. When I was in elementary school, I was lamenting our little town of 300, which had gravel streets, uh, didn't have a computer. The only paved road was the state highway that we didn't have a newspaper. And our neighbors uh, in both directions up and down the highway did. And so I convinced my folks that I'd seen a, a mimeograph, one of those original ones where you you know you type it out on the dual thing and the ink's in the drum and it rolls around like a printing press, uh, that I should create a newspaper. I was like a third grader and launched a newspaper in our third, had other ventures on Main Street, shoe shine, lemonade stands, popcorn. I mean, all this stuff, whatever crazy idea I had, they're like, hey, you should just do it. And then I'd get, you know, we'd start, you know, building our stand. D&D Incorporated was the name of our stand on on Broadway, Doug and Denny, my neighbor Denny from across the road. So they just never, they never discouraged me. And then I had, you know, great shop teachers uh, like Mr. Willard and uh, Mr. Goff that were always, uh, you know, willing to be encouraging when you were trying to do things or build things or what, you know, whether welding a go-kart or whatever the project was, they were always there to support you. So it was just a great place to grow up. And then my 
my dad died when I was a freshman in high school. My mom went back to work, widow with three kids. So I got to see her perseverance and character. And I learned, you know, courage and sacrifice. My dad was a World War II Navy vet. But then in my mid-20s, I saw my first Apple II computer uh, and I had 160 acres of farm ground. I literally mortgaged the farm ground I got from my dad. Uh, that became the seed capital for Great Plains. And everybody said, well, you can't build a software company. Well, first they what's a software company? Right. And then they said, when you well, you can't build one in North Dakota. So we, we ended up doing that. We started, there was like 10 of us at the beginning, but we grew that into a 2,000 person company with customers in 132 countries, uh, hundreds of thousands of customers. And you know, amazing experience, but I was just always... Uh, always had the support network around me that said, Hey, try it, it you know, take a risk, uh, go be an entrepreneur. And that's what, that's what technical education can do for our country and can change the lives of, of uh, so many people. Exactly. Right. It's so really refreshing to hear you point back to your time and, you know, what we used to call shop class and in technical education, being inspired by some great uh, teachers and really combining that experience with this, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit, the, uh, the whole idea of having a corporation when, when you're a young person and, and just making whatever money you could on Main Street America that that is carried through through your entire career. Obviously, your, your career as a, a tech exec and, and growing a software company, we could probably do a whole episode just on that topic. But but it really does speak to the power of experiences that young people have when they're young, the power of experiences in middle school and high school that really drive entire career opportunities. And in your case, the success that you've had, incredible success. And now as governor of the state of North Dakota really has its seeds in that combination of entrepreneurship and hands-on learning. And, and like I said, it's just so refreshing and, and so invigorating to hear you talk about technical education in that sense. You know, I've had so much fun, Governor, getting to know the people of your state, traveling across the state of North Dakota, as I did in the month of May this year. Just incredible individuals. And, and really, for anybody that hasn't visited your amazing state, it's it's a state of incredible beauty and incredible kindness when it comes to the people. I would love for you to share with our audience as we get to know North Dakota even better. What What is one thing that you would point to that would surprise our listeners about your state? Well, I think the thing that would surprise people the most is the amount of innovation going on in our state. We have had a mantra uh, during the time that our administration's been in office the last six and a half years, which is innovation, not regulation. I mean, so often people think of government and their job is to stop bad things from happening by regulation as opposed to empower amazing things to happen because of of the, the platform that you can create. Uh, which you know needs some responsible guardrails, but by and large, we've got to get rid of a lot of the red tape. And so we think about the energy revolution, the clean energy revolution that we're having in our country in North Dakota being an all above energy producer, one of the largest energy producing states in the nation. People don't think of that. Uh, and so we're literally fueling the world and feeding the world, but we've also, whether it's you know biotech software, uh, unmanned aerial systems, the amount of innovation, the amount of startups is going on, I think would shock anyone about what's going on in our country. And and even the energy revolution, uh, the whole concept of horizontal drilling, the, the Federal Reserve uh, for the district that covers North Dakota, every uh, decade they have to come up, what was the one thing that made a difference uh, in your economy? And it was always the microchip, the microchip, which it should be because software drives so many things. But for the decade of 2010 to 2020, they actually said horizontal drilling was the one piece of innovation that changed the economy the most in that entire uh, district of the Federal Reserve. And, and that was that innovation, be able to you know go down two miles, turn a corner, drill two miles horizontally and stay inside of a 30 foot strip. I mean, that doesn't happen unless you have people that have got technical skills 
uh, you know, combined with uh, the business models that allow that to work. But it's, you know, even like I said, you're in a, I'm in a drill shack with a petroleum engineer. And I'm like, how do you stay in something 30 feet thick, 10,000 feet underground? And they said, sir, if your house was two miles down and two miles over, I could drill the lockout in the front door. I mean, that kind of technical innovation has transformed uh, our entire country's economy. The fact that you're pointing to this whole idea of innovation, and especially, you know, in this day and age and in light of recent global events, uh, you know, this whole idea of, you know, of energy independence, energy security, and none of that happens without innovation. You talk about biotech, you, you talk about feeding and fueling the entire United States of America, and in many cases, the globe, and, and none of that happens without innovation. And, and really, Governor, innovation can't happen unless we create a culture and an environment of innovation. Uh, I happen to agree with you. You know, we certainly don't need a ton of regulation around innovation. Let Americans figure out a way to create really incredible new inventions, new advancements in whatever technology they're engaged in. And if we do that the right way, we are going to drive our economy forward. None of that happens without a workforce. None of that happens without people who have the skills and the understanding of how to innovate, have the motivation to innovate. And so much of that points back to education. And one of the things that I've been impressed about as I've gotten to know you, Governor, is just this incredible passion and focus that you have on the world of education in the state of North Dakota. So we'd love to learn a little bit more about what sparked that incredible passion and, and what has you so fixated on the educational component of your state as it relates to the overall success of North Dakota. Well, man, I think it's two things. One is I was, again, the gifts that I got from my parents goes back even, uh, you know, generations before that. I had a great grandmother who was the first woman in Dakota territory, pre-statehood, that had a college degree. She had a degree from Oberlin College. Then I had a grandmother that was the first female enrollee in at North Dakota State when it was founded back in 1890. There were six kids in the first class, five guys and one one girl. That was my grandmother. And, and then I had parents that believed in education. So it was, uh, you know, a gift to me that understood that. But when I think about education today, you know, the focus is always about inputs. You know, how big is the budget? We got to focus on outcomes. And with AI, it's changing everything because it's not no longer. I mean, education for certain professions, even doctors and lawyers that go, you know, can go a decade beyond even college is all about often memorizing and just loading up your brain with a bunch of knowledge. And now we're in an era where you can look up the answer to almost anything, anytime, any place on any device. So we have to think about skills and we have to think about, you know, these stackable skills and credentials. So the work that you're doing becomes more important than ever because education is going to be facing an entire revolution. It's going through it right now. He uh, was heading through that even ahead of AI. Uh, but all of those challenges are, are going to accelerate. But I, I've, I've benefited from education. I've benefited from great teachers. Uh, I've been inspired uh, and supported by by family. So I, I had a head start in that way. Uh, we didn't have a lot of resources, but I had, a, you know, the understanding about education. But we've got to get the, the generation. Everyone's got to have an access to be able to build the skills they need uh, to thrive in the, the mass flourishing that's that's coming in the future. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm actually keynoting an event as we record this next week in my home state of Wisconsin, a statewide event for the uh, the technical education system. And we're talking about exactly that. We're talking about this whole idea of how education is going to be disrupted by certainly by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and how do we prepare a generation for that, getting away from things like growth memorization and just being able to repeat back something that you read and really more how we take what we learn and how we use it and all these new ways of learning as well. I think 
that for those that are ready to innovate, that for those that love disruption, it's just an incredibly exciting time to be in education if we play our cards right. But it doesn't happen without leadership. It doesn't happen without vision. And it doesn't happen without some funding as well. And I know as you and I have talked and we were together in, in August and you made a real point when you were speaking to uh, all of the educators statewide in North Dakota about talking about how the model has flipped a little bit from being concerned about inputs. In other words, how are we going to fund education to uh, being concerned about what are we going to do with the funding. My sense is that funding for education is robust in North Dakota. Tell us a little bit about how your funding model is working. Well, the funding model is uh, fantastic and continues to climb. And we've created basically a uh, endowment fund for K-12 that takes a big portion of that funding and takes the burden off of property tax owners. Uh, but we're, our economy has been so robust. Uh, we've been able to build up such a large balance sheet in North Dakota. We've been able to basically ensure the future for education. But even more importantly, I think we've been able to pass uh, legislation thoughtfully and collaboratively, which has created a framework for innovation to occur. I mean, one key one uh, was the K-12 Coordinating Council. In many states, the teachers union, the educational leaders like superintendents and the school boards are all three separate camps with three separate lobbying groups. And then they're fighting the legislature. Uh, they might be now fighting a new group, the parents. Uh, you know, that are trying, you know, appropriately getting more engaged in things like school choice and helping to drive and understand what's being taught in the schools. So all these forces are, are competing. We, we're in a spot in North Dakota where that group formally gets together, the governor's office, legislators, uh, educational leaders, school board members, parents, uh, teachers, uh, all together. And we say, OK, we can agree on one thing. The actual customer here is the student. It's got to be student-centered. What's its focus isn't on, you know, we don't get together and talk about uh, more resources for teachers and superintendents. We say, what do we need to do for the students? Let's drive from there and then fill in everything else. Okay, well, you know, if you have better better outcomes for students, we need more money for teachers. Well, then that, that's appropriate. But it doesn't it doesn't start with the inputs. It starts with the outcomes for the students. So that's been fantastic. And then we've had innovations that have come out of that. We created a governor's task force on innovation, uh, understanding what the opportunities and that led to new legislation like the Learn Everywhere, because everybody said, hey, the way that learning is occurring right now has to be hands on team based real world. That's what you do in, in all the tech ed. But you know who else has been doing that forever in states like ours? 4-H, 4-H Achievement, FFA. Uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts merit badge programs. Those are hands-on team-based real-world certificate programs. And now we've passed legislation that not only can those groups meet inside of our public school buildings, the work that the students are doing can actually be applied towards credits. So if you've got, you know, four merit badges related to first aid, wilderness first aid, wilderness first responder, all that stuff, yeah, you, you can get a half a credit of health for high school and not have to sit through a health class because you've already demonstrated these achievements, then you can free up that time to take a technical class or some hands-on learning or a thing. And we've also said, you know, co-ops, internships, count those. School districts have the ability to say those can count towards graduation. So we've moved away from the butts and seats time to you can learn at your own pace. You can learn in your own place. That place could be outside the school district. You know, and you can learn in your own in your own space. So when when we create this flexibility, that's all cutting red tape for schools. When we cut the red tape for schools, it creates more opportunities for students to learn uh, the way they want. And then you've got individual centric learning as opposed to trying to move sort of a mob through at the same rate. Oh, now you've all cleared the second grade hurdle, the third grade hurdle. 
Uh, we, this is an opportunity for individual learning that allows people to build on their strengths and keep moving forward as opposed to getting washed out of the system at some point. You know, as you know, that is just absolutely music to my ears. You're familiar with my education journey. We've talked about the fact that, especially in, in K-12, I was the kid that couldn't sit still. I was the kid that couldn't pay attention. I had a hard time learning in a lecture. Um, and I was a good kid. I mean, I, I'm an Eagle Scout, proud to say. And, and if you know, if I could have lived in an environment where all of the work I was doing on my merit badges could have counted toward my education journey and had credit for, you know, toward graduation. And then you, to your point, you free up that extra time and maybe explore other things in school that are interesting to you. That to me is the way, just one of many ways that we can absolutely disrupt uh, education. You know, even before you and I met, I was, and I commented to so many people how fascinated I was with the level of alignment um, in education. And you don't see that in a lot of states. You know, a lot of times we go into K-12 districts, or maybe you go into a district office, or you go into, you know, the governor's office or, or the state legislature, and you hear all these different messages about what we should be doing in education. And, and during my time in North Dakota, not that there wasn't any dissension, because everybody, you know, good ideas and and good results come from people talking about what they believe and, and trying to reach consensus. But, but I was absolutely amazed at how well aligned literally every single level and everybody that we talked to was in terms of let's put the outputs first. I, I love the alignment, by the way, with with the business world. We don't raise a bunch of money and figure out what to do with it. We come up with a great idea and then we figure out how to fund it. And that's exactly what you're doing in North Dakota. But incredible alignment and, and love the disruption that's taking place, the new way of looking at education. And now we're really going to get into it. We're going to start talking about these experiences while students are middle school, high school, technical or community colleges things like career awareness, exploration and development and making sure, and, and I want you to go into your definition of choice ready, as I know that's something that's really important to you, Governor, but talk about how career exploration is different and how you're trying to innovate in North Dakota. You know, people in my generation probably thought if you had a career fair for a senior in high school and they went to a, you know, they went to a big gym and you had all the employers there when you're a senior in high school school and like, oh, you could, you know, be a nurse, be a fireman, join the army. That was where, no, it's way too late. We, the research all knows now that, that people decide and young people may decide, you know, negatively, they may, you know, you might have a young woman in elementary school go, oh, I'm not good at math. And so therefore they preclude themselves from going into any kind of technical jobs or computer science. We have to help people understand. I mean, the clear career awareness has to begin in elementary school. I mean, get the kids out of the building, take them on tours, go visit the fire station, visit the hospital, you know, go to a software company, go to somebody who's doing, you know, work with UAS, go to a biotech company. We have all these companies, uh, you know, around that would love to host young kids coming through. And, and that would be awareness. Like, wow, this is, you know, come home, mom, dad, hey, I, what'd you do today? I don't know. Same thing. No, I went and visited someplace. I went and, you know, met a zookeeper. I mean, make it fascinating and interesting so that kids can understand what's around. So that's the awareness. That has to start in elementary school. Career exploration is junior high. Junior high is like, wow, okay, now you got an opportunity. You think you're, in, you're interested in computer science or health services or architecture or CAD CAM or, you know, welding or electrician. You know, go shadow somebody for a half a day and see what you think about that actual thing. Cause then guess what happens in high school? Well, in high school now it's no, it's not seniors in high school exploring careers at a, at a little vendor show with employers in North Dakota. We want high school kids to actually be getting their career education if they want to, because guess what? If you start working at one of our career academies 
and you can get an associate degree. You can complete your whole first year of your associate degree while you're still in high school. Then you're a freshman. I went and met with freshmen in high school, October of what would have been their freshman year. They'd completed the first year of their associate degree in high school. And I said, how's it going? And two of them said, well, we just got job offers last week. It was October. We've been in, quote, college for six weeks. I said, what do you do? Well, we both got offers in uh, power plant management, $72,000 a year. These guys had no college debt. They were just getting ready to buy a, you know, a Ford F-150 non-electric, like a real pickup truck. Uh, you know, life was good. And then the employers that were going to hire them would pay for their college. So a career in technical education don't mean you're not going to get a great education. It just, but what might mean is you're not going to have a bunch of college debt. And so we, we have to shift that whole model of what we're doing and, and get people excited, create opportunities, and then get them on the path. And not only did those kids that had those job offers in October, they told me, one of them said, hey, I probably would have dropped out four years ago when I was a freshman in high school because I wasn't the cool kid. I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a honor student. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't part of the, you know, the, the click of the thing. It turns out his buddies were the other guys that wanted to, you know, build stuff and be mechanics and do things. And then all of a sudden that led him down this journey of, wow, you could actually run an electrical power plant when you're not even 20 years old because you'd have the skills to do that. So it, you know, it's life changing for a set of people to be able to have these careers as well. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago where I went and met a young man with a very similar journey, uh, had a, had an alternative high school experience that's available in my home state of Wisconsin to him. And, um, and was literally six months out of high school and was a, was a machinist working in a machining company, making the same kind of money that you're talking about. We always say, if you can graduate from high school and get a job like that, you can drive any pickup truck you want to, in that case, a Ford F-150. But absolutely, just incredible opportunities for students through career technical education. And I think those, those stories that you just shared, Governor, are exactly how we need to think about creating the next generation of the workforce that next generation doesn't come without a next generation of teachers as well. And we have challenges all over the country in terms of filling classrooms with quality teachers. Um, in my home state of Wisconsin, just in tech ed, we probably have 250 positions open across the state. And we're graduating in some cases, five to 10 students a year out of our colleges and universities for those positions. So how do you think about the shortage of teachers and how we solve for, especially in STEM and tech ed, the, the lack of skilled talent in the classroom? We have a lot of great there are a lot of great teachers, a lot of dedicated teachers, but just not enough of them. How do we solve for that? A couple of things we've been focusing on in North Dakota, and one of them is retention, because uh, we have a lot of people that go into teaching, and then they teach for a few years and they drop out. Sometimes they say, oh, it's because the salaries weren't high enough, but sometimes you know, they haven't had the mentorship. They haven't had a great experience. They get off on sort of the wrong foot. Uh, we saw some of this that people came out and were teaching, you know, starting their teaching careers right when COVID hit. I mean, uh, you know, tough time for a lot of careers, but we, we've we got a mentorship program going in North Dakota where we assign young people that are in their first year with someone who's been in the career. And we're finding that the, the statistics are all showing that when we've got active mentorship occurring, uh, we can increase the retention. So we get less dropout at the early age. And then when you talked about the, the shortage in you know, in STEM, so much of these rules were created, you know, sometimes by teachers unions to try to protect, oh, you've got to have these credentials, these credentials, these credentials, because we're trying to create, they're trying to create a barrier and put a wall around the castle to teach when you might have someone who spent, you know, his entire career, you know, building, uh, you know, a machining company like you described, or, you know, welding fabrication or 
you know, architects, engineers that are willing to come back, uh, you know, even farmers in North Dakota with ag education and ag tech, uh, retired farmers that do a lifetime of wisdom. And then sometimes we've been blocking them from being able to come back and teach. And we have to have a way to accelerate these people with a lifetime of experience to be able to get in and, and become the, the role the role models and the mentors for young people and the same thing the same thing in other teaching because I mean you know we got somebody who's been a computer scientist and is working for a software company and they want to teach a computer science class and then we say oh they can't because they don't have XYZ certificate and they know way more about what's going on with AI and computer science than anybody in that school district. Again, we just this is innovation, not regulation. What I just described, all that red tape is regulation. We've got to be able to create pathways uh, for non-traditional educators to come back and help, particularly in rural areas, because we're not going to get people to move some of these rural areas. This is we, we we just have to make progress on dropping the, the the barriers. We're not living in a world where we were post World War II when you know you, had, you might have had too many teachers and you had to create restrictions uh, and protectionism on the uh, profession. We're not there anymore. We, we're going we're in a chronic shortage period. And we got to get innovative about how we create some more supply. And in so many ways, we've changed the world of education. And I know you and I have both talked in detail about how the world has changed. And sometimes the, the standard classroom still looks as if it did, you know, right after World War II, the time period that you referenced when maybe we had a different view of, of who and how many should be in the teaching profession. We live in a completely different world now. We live in a, a Moore's Law world, an exponential economy world where products are doubling in price performance every 12 to 18 months, all this incredible uh, advancement in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and now it's time to take a new look at the world of education to build on the great foundation that we've created and not leave those practices that are working incredibly well, but also think about practices that in the future might be even more effective at preparing our students, not just for careers, but for, for a life in a world of technology and in a world that none of us have ever seen before. I know a big part of that is, is changing the student experience and really focusing on student-centric learning, student-centered instruction. And I know that's been a hugely innovative part of your platform as well. So how, how is North Dakota approaching the opportunity for student-centered instruction? I'm going to jump into that, but let me just say, when you mentioned some of the classrooms are the same, I know that firsthand because uh, one of the things, Matt, I think you know is that I have as governor uh, shadowed students. I mean, we we call up a school district uh, the night before and say the governor's coming tomorrow. Uh, pick a student, you know, not the valedictorian, but just pick a student, and he's going to go to every class with him or her all day long. Whatever their schedule is, that's what he's doing. And and it is, I like say to every legislator, you know, if you want to serve on education committee, you want to vote on education bill, figure out a way on a blind basis to just show up and spend a day in school. And you're going to find out that it's a lot like in many cases, you know, the bell rings, you got three minutes to get to the next classroom. I, I was late for Phi Ed class because I left my tennis <laughs> shoes in the car. And, awesome. and I was like, this is like very memorable back to high school. I think I did this in high school a couple of times, you know, right. running around, showing up late, you know, don't have your gear. It is a fantastic to understand, you know, thing. And, you know, in the, in, you know, the chalkboards are whiteboards and the overheads are now computer projectors, but you've still got a, you know, a sage on the stage sometimes, you know, given a lecture and the level of engagement isn't there. I'm looking at kids that are, you know, that are asleep underneath their hoodies uh, teachers trying their best, but we, we've sometimes we got to flip the model on some of these programs to uh, to do that. But the thing that you talked about on student centers, one of the things that we did get passed in law, like, again, which is a thing we call graduation pathways, which is gives opportunities for schools significant 
flexibility. We have another thing we passed called the innovation waiver, where a school board and a school can actually make a declaration that they're going to get out from underneath some of the other, you know, the, the heavy code that says these are what has to happen and this is the way it goes. But on graduation pathways, you can develop, start competency-based learning. So they can decide, we're going to give people credit for these things, these projects, these things that they're doing, uh, whether, you know, running a business. I mean, we've, we've had towns that have said, hey, our theater's closing. Why don't we have the students run it? Bowling alley's closing. Why don't we have them run it? Well, then if they're running the bowling alley, shouldn't they be able to get credit for a business class? You know, versus say you got to sit in a class and have someone tell you about business. Why don't you actually go run a business? Right. So we're, we're creating all kinds of creative ways to do this. Nationally, there's a, you know, school choice is a big movement and I, which I support. But when you get into these rural areas, there's, there may not be the resources to have two different schools. So we've got to turn every school into an innovation school. And we do that by cutting the red tape, create the opportunities for everybody, as opposed to choosing between a good school and a bad school. How about every school is great? How about every school is great? That's exact, exactly the way we want to see it. Give students as many possible options as we can. Let them choose what their educational pathway looks like as long as it it meets the, the requirements of, of the state. And I know it, I mentioned earlier that we had Dr. Corey Steiner on talking about the things going on in Northern Cass School District. That, by the way, I owe you a, a, a debt of gratitude for introducing me to Corey. What a great What a great innovator. But that's exactly how we have to think about the future of education. So, Governor, I know one of the things that you discussed again when we were together in August is these forces that you believe, four big forces that you believe are creating disruption in education. And we absolutely love disruption in education. I think it's pretty clear to our audience now that we've had this conversation that you're the kind of person that is all about positive disruption in education as well. What are those forces that you feel are having a huge impact on the world of education as we look forward to the next five to 10 years? Well, Matt, I should say as a point of reference, I first time I gave this keynote was over a decade ago when I was asked to speak to the North Dakota State Board of Higher Education because I really saw this happening to colleges. Colleges thought they had a moat around their business model. Uh, and some of that might have been geographically, financially, et cetera. But they just thought, hey, we've been around for 100 years. We're going to keep on going. But uh, you know, a four-year college education is a is a 400-year-old German construct uh, that is under threat. And the the forces that are changing that, technology, of course, uh, is something that changed that because that helps displace, you know, physical location. We saw this explosion of virtual learning occur during COVID, some good, some bad, but it's certainly disruptive. The economics, uh, you know, with the federal government the last 25 years and really accelerating under President Obama when they took the caps off the loan levels, now we have $1.6 trillion of student debt. Well, that student debt is on the student, but the student didn't keep the money. They gave the check to the university who added more administrators and then, you know, paid more to their professors and never addressed that the fact that they were a high fixed cost institution. And when you've got virtual learning where you can take one great teacher and have them teach a, you know, master class, great courses to a hundred thousand people, all of a sudden it's like software. You've got a low variable cost model running up against a high fixed cost you know, facilities and people have to be in classrooms. So the economics of higher education are blowing up. And that was, I could see that coming more than a decade ago. But then the demographics, which you've talked about with all these baby boomers retiring, you know, that is, you know, shifting. There weren't enough kids coming out of high school during a downturn in demographics to support all that fixed cost around all these physical uh, universities. 
And so then they have to get their head that they've got to serve people that aren't just 18 to 22 year olds, older than average students and retraining and relearning. And a lot of schools have been slow to do that. And then the last thing is this cultural mind shift, you know, which is you and I were in a generation where we know of families that said, we didn't go to college, but we're sacrificing everything. We're saving so our kid can go to college. And then they celebrate first kid in our family to go to college. I mean, it was a cultural thing. And now what they're, you know, what they're stuck with is the first kid that goes might end up with a bunch of debt. And then a sibling that had a tech degree has got no debt. And then we're in, we're in this conundrum. And so, you know, these forces of technology and, and demographics and uh, the economics and the cultural aspects are like the four horsemen that are just destroying the way we think of of higher education. So higher education is still going to be disrupted. Some of these institutions aren't going to make it. They're not responding fast enough. And then other ones, you know, like Purdue or University, you know, Arizona State under great leadership uh, are completely transforming themselves uh, with partnerships, collaboration, and uh, innovation. And and that's, so it is, po- it is possible even when the confines of higher ed to have, have really innovative solutions occurring. No question. We actually had the dean of the Thunderbird School at Arizona State on the podcast about a year ago, uh, exploring their incredible approach to higher education. You're right. It's going to be completely disrupted. Uh, we've got demographic shifts, not just in the workforce, but in, you know, we had the uh, after the, the great recession, as we like to call it, we had a dip in birth rate, I think pretty much everywhere, everywhere. But in your state of North Dakota, I uh, experienced that dip in the birth rate. That's going to have a huge impact as those students are now becoming college age. We have changing attitudes on the, on the part of families and students around debt and the value of a four-year degree. It's going to be, I think, interesting to watch how higher education adapts and not everybody is going to survive, but the ones that do, I think, are the ones that are going to find ways to innovate in the same way that you've innovated in the state of North Dakota. I can't help but observe, Governor, life seems so good for you. I mean, you're, you're, you've got so many great things happening in your home state. You've got a great life. You have great partnerships. And now you're seeking your party's nomination for president of the United States of America. What would push you in that direction? Well, for me, Matt, it was, it was simple. I mean, it starts with a heart of service. It starts with an understanding that if you get the executive branch right, uh, you can improve every American life. Uh, and we're deeply focused on, you know, three things, uh, fixing the economy, uh, getting an energy policy that, you know, helps uh, empower America, uh, and then national security. And these things are all three tied together. We've got to, to have national security. Like I said, you got to have food security. You have to have energy security. You have to have border security. We have to have innovation security. We have to have all those things. And then I looked at all the, everybody else in the field and said, wow, there isn't anybody else that's running. Uh, you know, I've created more jobs than all of them combined. I've, you know, been making payroll since my mid twenties. Some of them have never signed the front of a payroll check. And, and I think competition's good. And the thing I said, Hey, we're, we're the long, we're the long shot. We're the dark horse. We're jumping in this thing because we believe that uh, what we've got to say about how technology is changing every job, every company, every industry, but it hasn't changed government. We've proven in North Dakota, we took 27% out of the cost of our general fund in North Dakota, my first four months in office and every train still left on time. I mean, you can re-engineer uh, the way government services are delivered if you treat the taxpayer like a customer that they are. So that's why we're in and we're having a blast. We're happy warriors. And, you know, we're at it every day uh, around the country and people are starting to listen. People are saying, wow, you know, if we're going to fix this economy, maybe we should have somebody who's uh, you know, actually worked in the economy, someone who's had a bunch of jobs where he took a shower at the end of the day, not the beginning of the day, that maybe that would be helpful. And then when we talk about the, the the world of uncertainty we're in, and now we're in, you know, a proxy war with Russia, a proxy war with Iran, a cold war with China, maybe somebody who actually had 
customers in 130 countries who actually understands how the global economy works and, and would understand national security and cyber security and piracy of IP, all the things that I understand from being part of global economy, that's critical to our national security and our foreign policy plans. George Will said it best. This guy's the most qualified candidate that you've, you've never heard of. So uh, appreciate appreciate being on here to help everybody find out who we are. Absolutely. I've been a longtime admirer of George Will, both as a as a uh, pundit and an expert on baseball, by the way. So I'm a big George Will fan. And, and you may be a dark horse, but you're disrupting the race and you're disrupting the, the race in really positive ways. And it's really in the same fashion that you disrupted so many things around education in the state of North Dakota. And, and I think you're doing it for all the right reasons. And uh, we'll be watching the whole way and and, uh, and excited to see where the race goes. You know, assuming this does lead to the White House and you start thinking about education at a, at a federal level, I know you're a huge fan and a proponent of states' rights and, and keeping government local. What, if anything, should the federal government be doing to create a, an environment of innovation and education at a national level? Well, I, one of the things is, too much of the federal spending on education comes tied with, you know, political ideology, you know, one party or another. But you know, I, I would, I would free those up and create those block grants and get them back out to the states. But I would tie them the use of those federal dollars if they're going to be there at all. I would tie them to innovation. We've got to incent the kinds of things that we're doing here in North Dakota. We've got to incent that, and we have to champion the disruptors and the innovators. And the pattern breakers, we've got to incent them as opposed to subsidizing the status quo, because we know the status quo is in most places not working. I mean, we were pleased a couple of weeks ago to see that North Dakota was at the very top of, of you know, median SAT scores for the whole country. So we know we're making progress in the right direction. Championing disruptors and innovators in education. Um, you know, that's, again, music to our ears here at the Tech Ed Podcast. That is what we are all about. Wish we had more time, Governor. I know we're up against our uh, the end of our time together here on the Tech Ed Podcast. I did want to make sure we, we squeezed in time for one last question, and it's one that we ask every single guest here on the Tech Ed Podcast, and that is, let's go back to that 15-year-old Doug Burgum growing up there in Arthur, North Dakota. If you could go back in time, Governor, and give that young man one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? One piece of advice I would say would be dream bigger. I mean, we you, people say, wow, you were, you were a risk taker and you were a dreamer, but there was, even when we were in the software business, I mean, we, we built a software system internally to help us become the number one customer service company in the entire industry, you know, taking care of our customers. And that was a huge competitive advantage for us. And, but guess what? A product like that is what became Salesforce. <laughs> Salesforce, $200 billion market cap today. You know, we were doing what was what, what they now call CRM. It became a whole industry. Uh, we were doing it as an internal thing. And we just said, nope, we got to stick with our core thing, stick to our inning. Uh, when actually we had probably had a product inside the company that had even greater potential than that. So I just would tell everybody, whatever your dream are, you know, keep dream, dream big. And the people that are telling you, you can't do it, just get them out of your life and surround yourself with people that believe because our country has so much potential. And I think Walt Disney was the one that said, if you can dream it, you can do it. But that's uh, uh, more true now than ever in our country. So dream bigger, everybody. With all of your experience and all your accomplishments to hear you say that Doug Burgum should have 
dreamed even bigger as a 15-year-old young man. That that says a lot. Governor, we appreciate you dreaming big with us about the future of, of education, of technical education, not just in your state of North Dakota, but really setting a model in so many ways for the rest of the country. Can't thank you enough for joining us on the Tech Ed Podcast. Best wishes as you pursue the White House, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Matt. And again, uh, grateful. I think people know your story. You wouldn't have to be doing this with your successful career, but you're here giving back, making a difference, driving innovation, uh, spreading the word, shining a light on people that are having best practices. Uh, you know, we call that the best of America, what you're doing, Catherine and I. Uh, there's so many things that are, you know, te- the Tech Ed podcast is not getting a federal grant. You're doing this out of a love of students and a love of this country. And one of the things that we will do when we're in the White House is we are going to shine the, shine the light on the best of America. And it's, you know, people like you and the team that you've built and the work you're doing. So thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.